Okay, I'll just send round the um, attendance list. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, any problems with accessing the material for this week? No? So you've all managed to get hold of the two chapters from Freud and the Anzio Skinigo essay. Yes? There's one slight problem though, the PFR 11. It's not actually in PFR 11. It's the textbook, the PFR 11 problem. Shall I say that again? Um, you, you referenced the Skinigo being, up, being the, the PFR. No, no, it's. Um, it's in the, well where, where Freud discusses the body ego yeah. is at the end of chapter 2 of the ego and the id yeah, which I don't think is like no the, no it may not be I don't remember referencing it if I reference it 11 as volume 11 that was a slip Oh, it's volume, yes, PFL is at the Pelican Freud Library, not the standard edition. Okay. So it's in the, yes, it's in the Metapsychology volume, which is volume 11 of the old Penguin Freud series. But it's not volume 11 of the standard edition. Okay. Maybe there's, there's, there's three or four versions. Yeah. Okay. But people got hold of them. Good. Okay. Um, Okay, now I want to just situate um, some of this material um, in various ways. Um, let me put this in a in pocket. Um, I've divided the material on the ego into two different seminars, one this term and one next term. It's, it's got its advantages and disadvantages of doing it that way. I've done it that way because I really wanted us to think about the ego before we moved on to Laplanche next week because he makes use um, of, in particular, Anzio's notion of the skin ego in his model, in his return to um, the theory of seduction. Okay. Um, and I wanted that kind of be, to be in place before we get to um, the two tragedies in weeks 9 and 10. I wanted Laplanche's model to be up and running in your minds, and he relies on um, Anzio and some notion of the ego. So, um, so that's why we're doing this now. Um, and I've postponed to term two, um, uh, the, uh, in particular Freud's um, long and very productive essay on narcissism, which is uh, dated 1914, um, but which is the, is the place where a train of thought develops that will eventually lead to um, the theory of the ego we're looking at. Okay, so in a way, it's, been, um, slightly, it's a slightly artificial separation, but... Um, there, wasn't there wasn't room to do it in, in term one, and it goes quite well with the question of melancholia. We'll be spending two, about three weeks, I think, this, this, term, this, this year on melancholia, and the, and the essay on narcissism is crucial to the whole thinking of melancholia. So, you know, there's a reason for it being there as well. But it means that um, <coughs> you, haven't, you haven't read um, the on narcissism essay, which is, has led to some of this material, and I'll say something about that in a second. Um, I also wanted to situate um, the, theory, the ego theory in relationship to um, drive theory, which we've been looking at. Okay. Um, 
because Freud, uh, at different points in the development of his thought, um, there's a big reconfiguration of, of all the conceptual relations between terms. Obviously, the one we looked at with the, uh, the so-called inverted commas abandonment of the seduction theory in 1897 uh, and the move towards a developmental model of, of the, uh, and a drive-based model of sexuality um, is a major reconfiguration. Um, there, are, there is an, a further one um, some 20 odd years later, which we'll be looking at um, uh, mainly next term. Um, in 1920, he writes Beyond the Pleasure Principle and he reformulates his drive dualism um, so that um, the original opposition between, um, or distinction between the self-preservative instincts and the sexual drives or trebe um, <coughs> gets... Um, it's never abandoned, but it gets kind of, as it were, slightly displaced by a new formulation of what he calls life and death drives. Okay? But um, associated with that um, is another reformulation um, involving the, the positioning of the ego. Um, and it's, it's what um, is called the shift from the first to the second topography. And again, as with the drive theory, in a sense, Freud formulates another paradigm, but he doesn't abandon exactly the first one. So he kind of runs them together. Um, uh, and you might say, well, why can't he just make up his mind? Uh, and if he thinks the second paradigm is right, abandon the first one. And, this, and, he, and he doesn't want to do that. Um, and in a way, it takes a sort of reflective interpretation of what's happening here to, to realize it, as it were, it's not a simple substitution for, of a correct paradigm for an incorrect paradigm or even a more adequate one for an inadequate one, but that both paradigms in some sense respond to um, crucial dimensions of, of, of human psychic life or of the, of, of the object of psychoanalysis, human psychic structure. Um, and while they're in tension with each other, they nevertheless capture some crucial dimension of uh, of, the hu of human subjectivity. And so, in a funny kind of way, both are necessary, yet at some level they're incompatible with each other. Okay. Okay, so what I want to do is just do a little schema on the board here about in relationship to drive theory. Okay. I mean, the first um, model of the drive, what, what we've looked at in the three essays, um, there is uh, the old notion of instinct... Felt in Freud's German with a K, uh, and then there's the notion of drive, trebe. Okay, now um, the instincts associated with the function of self preservation. Okay, uh, and the drives really are, are about sexuality. Drives, plural. Okay. <clears throat> the moment, remember, at which uh, Freud sees the drive as emerging from and differentiating itself from um, the performance of the basic instinctual functions like feeding or, or, or expulsion of bodily waste, etc., um, is the moment of um, uh, autoeroticism. where the drive turns around on the infant's own body. 
um, okay, a moment of sort of self-pleasuring, if you like, the infant sucking its thumb or its fist or its foot or whatever, some other part of itself. Okay. Um, <coughs> now, in the essay we will come to look at next term, Freud formulates another concept, um, which is the concept of narcissism. Okay. And he differentiates it from autoerotism. So in some, some discourses, the two are collapsed together. For Freud, they're different. Um, and he says, what, and he asks the question, what converts autoeroticism into narcissism? Um, and he says that a new psychical action is the phrase he uses. A new psychical action is required that converts autoeroticism into narcissism. Now, autoeroticism is to do with the first state of the drive, so it's plural, and it's that polymorphous, perverse, multiple fragmented um, uh, dispersion of, of, of the drives around the body and the body's surface. Um, whereas narcissism um, involves an, a unification, and it involves the notion of the ego. Na uh, narcissism is love of the ego, um, and, and the ego is a unified self-representation. So between um, the fragmented plurality um, and polymorphousness of the, of the autoerotic and narcissism, something has intervened, a new psychical action, to produce a kind of, uh, of, of um, unification of the at the level of the drives. Um, where they're centered on um, not the body and its different um, excitable um, zones, but on the ego. Now, what is this thing, the ego? Um, <coughs> Freud says a number of different things about it. Um, in, in one sense, it's just a, a self-representation, okay? At a terribly simple level, it's a self-representation. But a self-representation that has, has a as an effect, um, uh, it, 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 as it were, um, in, in, he, he, in the narcissism essay, he kind of says it but doesn't quite say it, that um, narcissism and the ego develop together. Okay? So the new psychical option, uh, action is the formation of the ego as a unified self-image or unified self-representation. Okay. Um, and this is, um, this is thought in, in libidinal terms, as it were. Okay? It's the unification of the drives on a single object, which is the self-representation. Um, so that the ego there is thought of as being, or he calls it, a reservoir of libido, in which the drives are all brought together, as it were, um, in one psychical place or one psychical site or object. Um, so the ego then is understood um, as, as both a libidinal and a narcissistic construction, definitionally. And it's from the ego as a, as a kind of reservoir of libido that various object relations and object attachments are formed. The ego, he says, loans out it's, it's libidinal investments to different objects in the world and under certain circumstances draws them back into itself. Um, and that gives rise to, um, a further to, to a further set of distinctions 
between primary and secondary narcissism. Okay. Primary narcissism is the bringing of everything together in that first moment of formation, that new psychical action that unifies the drives in the self-representation and, and centers the, the subject on, it, on, on itself. Um, but that, and it's from that reservoir, as I say, that Freud imagines uh, the ego putting out libidinal investments into different objects in the world around it. Um, but those, but that, but that uh, process of what, uh, unfortunately, um, I, sh I don't know if I've commented on this before, there's this word Strachey uses, cathexis, from the Greek, very unhelpful translation. Freud's is an ordinary German term, besetzung, which just means occupied. Okay, if you go into a public lavatory in, in Germany and, and somebody's already there, well, say so, that's on the, on the outside. And like the English word invest, it can, mean, it can have a financial meaning, um, as when you uh, invest money or finances in, in, a, in a project. It can also have a military meaning. Um, it's now slightly archaic in English, but um, uh, in earlier... Uh, periods, people would talk about an army investing a city, by which they meant surrounding it and then besieging it in order to occupy it. Okay? So it's the idea of, of an energy or a force occupying a fixed site. Okay? That's what besetzung. Sorry? I mean, that's what I was myself beginning to wonder whether I, whether I knew how to spell it correctly. Uh, um, There may be another S in there, or maybe it's the other way around. Besetzung. <laughs> um, and it means, and it's an ordinary everyday German word, to, in, to, to, to occupy, to invest, okay, a particular site. Um, and Strachey translates it as cathexis. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's just this unhelpful technica technicalism, technicality. Um, now, um, Primary narcissism can be put out into uh, the world um, and then drawn back again. When it's drawn back again, it takes the form of secondary narcissism. Okay. So we have primary narcissism, uh, which is another name for it. Is Am I, get, am I getting this right? Yes. Uh, yes, ego libido. A libidinal investment of the ego or self-image. Um, and when this returns to the ego um, in the form of secondary narcissism okay. um, so there's a sort of circuit of, of libidinal investments and both the notion of mourning and of other things um, uh, uh, conceptualised at a later point in terms of this capacity of the ego to direct li its libidinal investments uh, and to disengage or decathect, to use Strachey's term, um, to, to disinvest and draw back into itself its libidinal energies. The notion here of the ego, then, is of, is of a, uh, a distinct self-representation which is boundaried, which has limits. Okay. Um, and there are two levels of discourse in Freud's thought at which the ego is posed. One is at the level of perception, 
and one is at the level of the drive or, or, or libidinal investment. And you, in a sense, you need both registers of discourse enabled to be able to think the nature of the ego. Some of you may be familiar with, uh, if you've done some pre previous reading of psychoanalysis, um, uh, uh, an idea or a theory that's had a lot of circulation in English by the French uh, 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 psychoanalyst Lacan, the mirror phase. The idea that he, he argues that the, mirror, the ego is, is kind of crystallized out when the child looking in the mirror. Um, uh, but he, in that essay, and we, uh, uh, and we will be looking at it next term, um, it's a short little essay on the mirror phase and the formation of the ego. It's done almost entirely at the perceptual level of the child's gaze at its self-image in the mirror. Okay. Or, or, the merest gesture towards the notion of libido takes place in that essay. Um, so, there's a, so there's a way of thinking about the ego in terms of um, it, itself being... Um, well, first of all, uh, it, it's formed, Freud says, in, at certain points in his theory, around the perception consciousness system. That's, he, it, in some of his formulations, he says it's the nucleus of the ego. Okay, the ego is formed around the perception consciousness system. What is secondary narcissism exactly Well, it's when the ego libido is drawn back into the ego. Okay, and that's, that's, uh, so that's, it's not the primary narcissism that has formed the ego in the first place. Okay, but it's a, an influx of libidinal energy back into the ego when it disinvests from... Uh, various object relations. And that's one of the things that initially Freud discovers and thinks about in relationship to mourning and melancholia with the loss of a loved object. That what was invested in that loved object is taken back into the ego. Okay? But by the time we get to... And that's 1917, the essay on melancholia that we'll be looking at next term along with the narcissism paper. Um, by the time we get to this, these two chapters from the ego and the id... Freud, in a way that's very characteristic of him, having discovered something, a psychical process, which is manifested and visible in an extreme psychic state like mourning or melancholia, he then realises that what he's discovered is not, is not unique to that state, but that, that, there, that it is a more general process to be found um, in less extreme forms in, elsewhere. So we see him saying in Chapter 3 of The Ego and the Id... In fact, he recites that fact, you know, that he'd first come across this notion of, uh, of an object relationship being taken back into the ego and being, subst and being turned into something else in the ego. And in Chapter 3, he calls it being turned into an identification. Okay? So the lost object that was erotically or libidinally invested um, is disinvested, um, taken in back into the ego, and the ego, as it were, recoups that libidinal investment in the form of an identification with the lost object. So the person in extreme forms of mourning or melancholia has taken the lost object into themselves and plays out a kind of sadomasochistic drama um, in relationship to that internalised lost object. And that's, that, that's all to come when we look at melancholia. Here he's realising that actually that in that extreme pathological form, that's one thing, but actually this process of converting an object relation into an identification is a pervasive psychical process though he first came across it in, in, in Mourning and Melancholia. Um, and indeed, 
in the course of chapter 3, you can see him saying, coming to the conclusion that actually this is how the ego is built up. The ego is built up through successive identifications with love objects that have been renounced or given up. And that this kind of internalization stroke identification is perhaps the only condition on which we can tolerate the loss of our love objects. Okay. So it then becomes a more general formative process by which the ego is built up. But before we get to that, um, uh, <coughs> where I was trying to, what I was trying to do is to set up this tension in Freud's thought, at times virtually verging on contradiction, between a notion of the ego at the, uh, in the perceptual register, where the ego is formed around, he says, the perception consciousness system. And the way he describes it at the end of chapter two is the ego, uh, the ego is, is, is what perceives the outside world. It perceives objects in the outside world. Um, it's the place where perceptions are lodged that come from the, outs from the outside. Um, and therefore, he wants to, by a series of, of, of rather rapid moves, to say it represents a kind of uh, reality principle. Okay, that the ego, due to its, um, uh, its formation around the perception consciousness system, as it were, is the embodiment in the psyche, in the mind, of uh, an outward-oriented reality principle that checks the drives. Um, so there's that version of the ego, the, what I'm calling the realist ego, the realist slash perceptual ego. Um, and then there's a notion of the ego is built up through, uh, as a libidinal construction, as a narcissistic libidinal construction, which he elaborates in chapter three as being built up through a series of successive identifications. And you might say, well, how can you hang, hold these two things together? Um, something that is a narcissistically loved self-representation doesn't seem like a very good description um, or a, a very good candidate um, to be promoted to, the, the, to being the embodiment of the reality principle. You'd have thought, in fact, a narcissistic construction is just the opposite of, of something that could be guaranteed to give you reliable um, self-checking um, information, self-restraining information about um, objective um, circumstances in the outside world. Um, so you've got these two, as I say, uh, two perspectives that are in tension with each other and at times they seem almost contradictory. How could the, a, 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 a narcissistically constituted ego um, f ever come to function as a reliable embodiment of the so-called reality principle? It doesn't on the whole look very likely. Okay. But then Freud does this one of his characteristic things. He, he and he elaborates that idea in a paragraph, and then by a series of sideways movements, a kind of he segues out of that um, realist notion, a notion that is in much criticised within psychoanalysis, and Lacan just repudiates it entirely uh, with great contempt in his Mirafay's essay. Um, Freud nevertheless segues, um, as it were, out of that emphasis into something else. Um, and it's, he's sort of en route, this is at the end of chapter two, he's en route to this idea of the identificatory ego made up, made up out of um, uh, you know, 
reinvested or um, uh, libidinal relations that have been taken back into the ego. Um, and he does it in a very curious way, and I wanted just to trace that, because I think it's quite um, important. Um, he's therefore being pulled in different directions, and he's thinking about the nature of the ego. Um, <coughs> now, I'm just going to find uh, that, that transition moment, which I think uh, we can look at in, in seminars. Um, You can see with that weird little diagram, which has been the object of a certain um, mockery within psychoanalysis, um, Freud trying to retain the two topographies together and map one onto the other. Okay. Um, and of course, what's forced him into the second topography uh, is to realize that um, consciousness and the ego don't map onto each other in a way uh, at all. Um, so that the first topography is that distinction between con uh, the conscious system, the consciousness <coughs> perception system, the pre-conscious uh, material that could be brought to consciousness um, through a certain kind of mental work. Um, uh, it's like our archive, as it were, our mental <coughs> archive, our mental hard drive. Um, and then the unconscious, which is what has been excluded from consciousness by repression and where a, a considerable amount of mental or psychic energy is involved in keeping that material outside the, the field of consciousness. But of course it doesn't go away. It doesn't abolish it. Um, so it remains an opaque, semi-closed system, of it, mental system of its own, seeking always to return and re-infiltrate into consciousness. Now, he doesn't want to abandon those distinctions, but um, I think at some level there'd been this assumption that somehow the ego and consciousness are coterminous. And what he comes to realise is that, and he says this at the very end of chapter one, of, of um, the paragraph at the end of chapter one of the Ego and the Id, um, that what he comes up against again and again um, is that there are aspects of the ego that are, that are unconscious. Okay. Um, so that, ma that makes him realise that using consciousness or its absence as, a, as the demarcating criterion um, for the different mental systems um, is only partially useful and uh, it stops one from being able to think extent more extensively about what are the unconscious dimensions of the ego itself and that raises the question well what is the ego itself um, so he says there are three unconsciousnesses as it were there's the um, pre-conscious which is simply um, descriptively unconscious but might come into consciousness. Um, there is the, pre, the unconscious which is excluded um, from consciousness by, the, by repression. Um, and there is the unconscious dimension of the ego. And the unconscious dimensions of the ego are precisely um, those mechanisms of exclusion and repression operated by the ego. Okay? Uh, so that those, the, the very things that constitute the system of the unconscious are themselves unconscious. Um, if, if that were not the case, then Freud would be open to the kind of critique that Sartre makes um, of, uh, of Freud, and I think doesn't quite get um, what Freud is arguing. But he says, how can there be a system that's unconscious because, the because if you tell yourself you're going to forget something, then of course you know that that's what you've done. Um, and therefore, um, uh, the, the, that part of the mind that, it, that pushes the unconscious material into, into unconsciousness 
you know, knows what, it's done, what it has done. Um, and Freud comes up against and tries to describe a whole series of mental processes of which, uh, which altogether uh, all he, he puts under the heading of defense, operated by the ego, in which the ego um, produces uh, effects um, and it's unconscious of the fact that he has done that. So there are, there are processes and dimensions and functions of the ego that are unconscious. So it leads him into thinking about, you know, what is it? What is that element in the ego that, that, um, uh, that operates, that drives the ego to behave in this way? And he comes to think about what he calls a particular grade um, uh, within the ego, which he calls the ideal ego or superego, uh, formed by identification with, with, the, uh, with the adult, other, in, in particular the parent. Um. So in chapter two, um, he's got his model here of the, the ego, um, the, 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 the site of the drives, which he labels the id. And again, Strachey's chosen all these Latin terms, ego, superego, id. Freud uses ordinary German words. He talks about das ich, the I, the über ich, the over I, and das es, which is the it. Um, uh, 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 um, but Strachey sort of either uses Greek or Latin. I, I don't know what makes it sound more scientific or something. Um, so the id, or the, the it, the, which is the site of the drives, uh, the ego, uh, and the uber uh, ich, the over eye, or what's translated as the superego, which is the embodiment of uh, sort of norms and injunctions um, that have been at, uh, internalized through an identification with the, with the parent or the adult figure. Um, but the ego he has in the middle is trying to negotiate the demands of the id and the injunctions of the superego and looking out nervously um, as, the, as the subject of perception into an outside world whose demands it also has to, uh, has to represent. Um, and he says actually the ego has, is simply a modified, and he has this kind of odd description of the way in which the ego has been formed through the successive impact of sense data coming in from the outside onto the primitive, infantile, undifferentiated uh, organism. Uh, and that the ego is, is, f- the ego is formed, um, he says in, in one point, through a, a modification of the body id by the Im- impact of, uh, of things coming from the outside world. Um, uh, and he sees it as uh, a surface differentiation. He then makes this, I'm, I'm reading now from this paragraph, about four paragraphs in from the end of chapter two. Um, the ego seeks to bring the influence of the external world to bear upon the id and its tendencies and endeavors to substitute the reality principle for the pleasure principle which reigns unrestrictedly in the id. And then he offers us this proposition, which, um, well, I think is frankly um, unsustainable, um, but it's necessary for him to set up his, 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 his argument. Um, if the pleasure principle reigns unrestrainedly in the id, that's the energy source of, in the id, um, what, um, 
what equivalent force does the ego have if its job is supposed to be to control the drives of the id? Um, he goes on to say, for the ego, perception plays the part which in the id falls to the drive. I'm changing the word instinct into drive because it's tree in Freud's German. I'll read that out again. The ego, for the ego, perception plays the part which in the id falls to the drive. The ego, perception, plays the part which in the id falls to the drive. And he goes on to say, the ego represents what may be called reason and common sense in contrast to the id which contains the passions. All this falls into line with popular distinctions which we are all familiar with. At the same time, however, it ought only be regarded as holding good on average or, quotes, ideally. Now, anything that falls into line with popular distinctions needs to be interrogated. Now, this proposition of Freud's that somehow or other, it's a, it's a profoundly unpsychoanalytical proposition, that somehow or other, the mere perception of objects in the outside world constitutes an, a, a, an internal energy or force in the mind that enables the ego to control the drives. Right? Now, that's, that's, that's the hiccup, that's the problem. It's, it's like a category mistake. Right? A perception of an object in the outside world has, has no necessary psychical force or energy, let alone uh, uh, does the reception of such perceptions um, guarantee the ability of the ego to do, to do anything. As, you know, um, the ego might as well be paralysed by fright or anxiety by its perceptions. Indeed, it's precisely that state that Freud describes when he's giving his account of trauma. What happens... Uh, in a traumatic situation, the ego is taken by surprise. It wasn't expecting something. Um, it sees something approaching and it seizes up with anxiety. It can't deal with what's about to happen. The mere fact of having a perception of something, even if it's a life-threatening situation, does not guarantee that the ego has any capacity whatsoever to do anything about it. Okay? You, ha you have to think about what, where, 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 what are the equivalent internal mental forces that the ego might marshal in order to cope with the overriding demands of the drives. So, it's, so this homology between perception and instinct, or perception and the drive, just is, is a no-starter. Um, and he gives a little metaphor. Um, uh, the functional importance of the ego is manifested in the fact that normally control over the approaches to motility, or mo being mobile, devolves upon the ego. Thus, in its relation to the id, it is like a man on horseback who has to hold in check the superior strength of the horse, with this difference that the rider tries to do so with his own strength while the ego uses borrowed forces. The analogy may be carried a little further. Often, a rider, if he is not to be parted from his horse, is obliged to guide it where it wants to go. Obliged to guide it where it wants to go. So in the same way, the ego is in the habit of transforming the id's will into action as if it were its own. I'll say that again. In the same way, the ego is in the habit of transforming the id's will into action as if it were its own. This is a very paradoxical metaphor, right? It starts out by being a metaphor offered you so you can picture in a simple way how the ego might control the id or the drives. Okay? The rider on horseback reining in his horse. Now, where is he getting the energies, the forces from to do that? Well, he doesn't have them in his own right. He borrows them from the id. Uh, that's interesting. Now, how does that work? Well, Freud says, um, 
if he is not to be parted from his horse, he's obliged to guide it where it wants to go. Okay? He's transforming the id's will into its own. So it looks there, what started out as a metaphor to exemplify the ego's control of the id and its drives, turns into uh, an image or a metaphor that actually describes the way in which the ego continually has to capitulate to the very thing it's supposed to be controlling. Um, it may have the illusion of control, um, but it has, if it's not to be parted from its horse in terms of the metaphor, um, it has to sort of transform the will of the id into its own. It has to accept, basically, um, the overall uh, force or orientation or drive of the id. Um, so it's a, it's a peculiar kind of impasse Freud's thought gets into uh, in trying to set up the ego in this way. But then he does this very Freud thing. He does this kind of wonderful sideways move into another apparently unrelated issue, which is actually extremely illuminating. In the very next paragraph, he goes on, um, another factor besides the influence um, of uh, the system perception seems to have played a part in bringing about the formation of the ego and its differentiation from the id. A person's own body, and above all its surface, is a place from which both external and internal perceptions may spring. It is seen like any other object in the world, but to touch it yields two kinds of sensations, one of which may be equivalent to an internal perception. So you're touching something that you touch yourself, um, you're touching what is like an object outside yourself, but you're also feeling yourself being touched. It's an internal sensation, what in uh, psychology or philosophy is called apperception. The, the, uh, the, percep the, the perceiving self-perception. Self uh, psychophysiology has discussed the manner in which a person's own body attains its special position among other objects in the world of perception. So there's something quite special about self bodily self-perception. Okay? Uh, it's in some sense foundational for uh, one's capacity to perceive objects in the world. Uh, and he goes on to say, pain seems to play a part in the process and the way in which we gain new knowledge of our own organs during painful illnesses is perhaps a model of the way by which, in general, we arrive at our idea of the body. So that's interesting. We're now moving to a notion of a general idea of the body um, that emerges out of um, a series of localised self-perceptions or apperceptions. And then he goes and he makes this wonderful leap and, and this very bold um, proposition. The ego is first and foremost, he says, a bodily ego. It is not merely a surface entity, though that's where it starts from, uh, but it is itself the projection of a surface. It's not merely a surface entity, it is the projection of a surface. And then we're given a little foot footnote to the English edition, um, uh, provided by Strachey, who obviously interrogated Freud on what he meant by this. And the footnote reads, the ego is ultimately derived from bodily sensations, chiefly from those springing from the surface of the body. It may thus be regarded as a mental projection of the surface of the body, a mental projection, a projection inwards to some site in the mind um, of the surface of the body and its sensations and perceptions. Besides, as we've seen above, sorry, uh, a mental projection of the surface of the body um, representing the superficies, the, the, ex the external edges or f uh, um, surfaces of the, of the mental apparatus. Um, so a, a mental projection inwards from the body surfaces uh, into the mind, 
and he's using the word projection in a really um, curious way there. Um, normally in psychoanalysis, projection in the psychoanalytic sense of the term means that something has been projected from the inside outwards, as in paranoia, where the paranoid person um, uh, constructs somebody as a persecutor or um, somebody who's listening in or knows what my thoughts are or whatever. And it's clearly a way in which the paranoid subject uh, allows themselves to become aware of um, a whole set of intolerable feelings by attributing them to somebody else and they then return from the outside. So it's, that's what the psychoanalytic concept of projection is, projection from the inside to the outside. On the other hand, projection has a different meaning in, in um, physiology and um, studies of the nervous system. There the term projection is used um, to describe the ways in which um, uh, sensations are transmitted um, uh, from the nerve ends through to the cerebral cortex. Um, <coughs> now Freud here is using um, the term in that footnote, projection, to describe a process by which a mental representation of the body, of the bodily self, is formed. It's a projection into a mental space. Okay, so it's not just like the registration in the cortex of a sensation that travels from my fingertips or wherever um, up my nervous system and is, re and is registered in the brain. Okay? This is a, a mental entity, not a physiological um, uh, 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 series of sensations registered at some point of the cortex and the brain. And indeed, in the main text, if we go back from the footnote, he has this very interesting um, analogy. Um, if we wish to find an anatomical analogy uh, for his idea of a body ego, we can best identify it with the cort cortical homunculus of the anatomists, which stands on its head in the cortex, sticks up, stick, sorry, sticks up its heels, faces backwards, and as we know, has a speech area on the left-hand side. So it's an analogy <coughs> uh, with the ways in which um, physiology has gradually mapped the um, the projection from the um, uh, nerve, nerve endings in the, in the body surface of the body to the cerebral cortex. Um, but of course, that mapping is actually, and I'm not going to go into why this is the case because it it's, takes us into something more complicated <coughs> in physiology. That mapping is the reverse. Goes through, is, is, so that uh, the little homunculus is the Latin word for a kind of little, the little man. Uh, uh, that, that, that the cortical homunculus, the mapping of the whole body in the, in the cortex, stands on its head, sticks up its heels, faces backwards. Uh, it's, it's, it's in reverse, as it were. Um, and there's a whole set of physiological reasons why that's the case, etc. Now, Freud's saying the ego is a, like a mental analogy to that. That's what he's trying to say. Um, it's not... So it's not a... Um, it's not... Um, simply um, something that happens in the cerebral cortex. It's not simply a matter of uh, uh, physical transmissions of nervous impulses, etc. Uh, it's a transferal inwards. Um, I feel like, a, like a, almost like a metaphorical transference. Something that is a, 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 an analogy or a likeness. Uh, it's like a process of mimesis takes place in which all the information that comes from the body's surface is unified, delivered to one place and unified and a kind of and a provisional primitive map, mapping of the body uh, in the mind. 
by a kind of mental transfer takes place. That's, that's his argument. And then he says nothing more about it. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, um, having produced this very fruitful and, and suggestive hypothesis, we, th we turn the page thinking, oh, what's, wh and what follows from that? Um, and what we get is now for something entirely different. Uh, uh, and what we get there is an argument about the way the ego is built up through identification with love objects. Okay? And the way in which these, uh, um, <coughs> these love objects are renounced, uh, taken into, introjected is the technical word, into the ego. And, and, and the ego, through this process of introjection, identification, is able to recapture the libidinal investment back into itself uh, in a process of secondary narcissism. And he says this is how the ego is built up. The ego is built up through these successive um, identifications. And it's a double register he's talking or using here. On the one hand, it's a level of um, <coughs> perception and mental images of the, of the, of the other. On the other hand, it's to do with the libidinal investment of the other and the mental images of the other. So this is a double register uh, and leads him then to see the, the ego as this hybrid thing that could be, in extreme cases, fragmented into its component parts, that the different identifications may be incompatible or warring in some way. And he goes on to suggest that cases of multiple personality uh, are examples where different identifications seize control of, um, of the field of consciousness at different times. <coughs> we should fin uh, finish in a minute. I just want to say this leads into two different areas that, that I hope we'll talk about in the seminar. Um, one is into the question of, e of the Oedipus and Oedipal identification and, 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 and the way in which in the rest of Chapter 3, in this interesting series of moves, he changes the notion of bisexuality from something that is a, operates at the level of the drives, I sexually invest members of both sexes, into a, into a question of identification. Okay? I identify with um, members of both sexes. And that this is crucial to an understanding of the Oedipus complex, where the Oedipus complex has both what he calls positive and negative dimensions. Um, so that's one very interesting um, and, and, and fruitful line of thought that develops that the ego, by internalizing uh, uh, different uh, identifications with different parental figures, um, positions, it gets positioned and builds up its own very, very hybrid, layered, and, and narcissistic um, uh, formation. The other one is um, to the direction that Anzieu has taken in his essay on the skin ego, where, in a very rich way, he develops Freud's um, uh, very bold but um, uh, uh, undeveloped notion of the body ego. Um, and it's an, it is extremely... It's a very rich essay where he draws on uh, animal ethology, studies of other species, uh, the higher species like baby monkeys, etc. Um, and he poses a challenge to certain versions of psychoanalysis, which is quite interesting, um, which prioritise, as it were, the oral relation and the oral relation to the mother's breast, etc. And he's, and he's saying that is... Um, and it's his criticism partly of Freud but, and, and, and in particular of uh, um, Melanie Klein this prioritization of the infant and the infant's relation to the breast leaves out what, is, what it is that produces a unified body schema. Where does that come from? How is that produced? And his argument is basically it is to do with that first very primordial experience of the body's surfaces. Okay, okay, so he's back there where Freud was, thinking about the body's surfaces. 
and the way in which the body surfaces have this kind of multiple function. One is, um, it's like a sack. It's a containing sack in which um, all my insides uh, 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 are um, gathered together and, uh, and contained. So it, it functions as a kind of very primitive form of container. Um, it's, um, it's also a, a kind of series of thresholds. And again, we've, we, when we were thinking about the drive, this notion came up to some extent. The idea of um, thresholds or uh, frontiers between inside and outside. The orifices, which are, which are as it were, prioritised uh, in the emergence of the drives, are those places where um, things come in and things go out, okay? in which, therefore, the, the, the infant becomes uh, aware of um, <coughs> exchanges taking place and of a kind of a very, very rudimentary and very primitive me-not-me me experience um, it takes place around those kind of rim-like structures, as it were. Um, in which the, uh, and this wonderful formula that I think I quoted in the email I sent you from Antje about uh, <coughs> how this, this, through these orifices the infant relates, and again in a very primitive way, to its first experience of another person. Uh, so there's sites of intersubjectivity. Uh, and he says, the massage is a message. And I think it's a, a really condensed and very suggestive sort of epigram. The massage is a message coming from the other. Um, and finally, there's the notion of um, there's the protective sac, there's the threshold, and there's the idea of the skin surface as being uh, a receptor, okay, which is a development of the of the threshold idea, uh, uh, in which different things are are, um, uh, are received and, and to a certain extent, filtered, um, and and um, you know it has a protective function, as it were. So these are very, a series of very primitive experiences of the body. And he wants to say, actually, sexuality, he makes a criticism of Freud, but I think he, he's, at that point he slips back into an, a very non-psychoanalytic idea of sexuality. He wants to say, this formation of the body, uh, of the skin ego, is, not, is pre-sexual, it's not sexual. But when you look at uh, how he then goes on to talk about sexuality for him, in this essay at least, sexuality is always genital sexuality. Right? So he's, he's missing out on the radicality of Freud's proposition of the pregenital, okay? a pregenital eroticism. Um, and so he, he attempts to sort of um, to, to, to split off the question of the sexual from his argument about the skin ego and only to bring it in at a later point. Okay? Whereas in a way, the implications of what I've been saying, uh, commenting on Freud, is that the, that the um, unification of the drives to form, a, to form an ego is, is, has an, has an in, uh, inevitable libidinal dimension to it from the very beginning. But the libido that's in question is not a kind of proto-adult genital libido, okay, but it is, it is that infantile, polymorphous, perverse libido and that's, one of the th and that's one of the things one needs to think about in thinking about the skin ego. Okay, I'll finish there.